the opposite happened. People gathered around because they appreciated the ambition. So that has to change. Otherwise, uh, arts and cultural scene risks not delivering what it needs to do in a city that's rapidly transforming. It's no good having a body without a soul. IMHO invites you to be the judge. In this podcast, we turn the microphone back on the leaders of the arts and entertainment industry and ask them to tell us what they really think. These are their unflinching and unfiltered answers and their honest opinions. Welcome to the IMHO podcast. My name is Adam Bruins, and today for the first episode, we are joined by outgoing Brisbane Festival Artistic Director David Berthold, who this year delivers his fifth and final Brisbane Festival. I can be shy as well as outgoing. David, you've been uh, in Brisbane for 10 years as of this year. What were your initial impressions of the city? Actually, it'll be 11 come November. And my first impressions, the weather, I think, actually, and certainly in November when I arrived, although I'd, of course, been in Brisbane before and lived in Brisbane some time before, but the weather and the relaxed attitude are probably the two things that struck me the most. This November, you said, marks 11 years since you first set up again here in Brisbane. What's the most significant changes that you've witnessed over that time? The most significant change has been in the physical transformation of the city and an extraordinary level of urban transformation, you know, cross city rails and, you know, Queen's Wharf and Howard Smith Wharves and, you know, Brisbane Live and Victoria Park, all, I mean, an endless list that we all know of and much more that we don't know. Um, and that will significantly change the personality of the city. And of course, we've all noticed that difference, but even in the next three years, the city will be almost unrecognisable. Um, and that's certainly the most significant change for me. And what do you think, uh, on the flip side of that, what still needs to change? I think it comes directly out of that. And, you know, when people are choosing where to live and work, all the research tells us that they put good arts and culture right up there with good schools and good transport. So it strikes me that we need a much fuller arts and culture if we're to take full advantage of those transformations. You know, it's no good having a body without a soul. And, you know, a city isn't its buildings. Uh, a city is its people. And so I think we need to find a way to integrate good arts and culture uh, all the way through the city. Otherwise, you know, the risk is, and there are loads of examples of this around the world, that the city will have a kind of sterility about it and won't attract people to live and to work here, you know, without a good arts and cultural scene. You speak of the necessity or the vitalness for a rich arts and cultural scene. Who are those in Brisbane in 2019 doing their bit to deliver on that? I think there's a lot of grassroots energy, but it's not gripping as much as you would hope. And it's because Brisbane has a very, um, it's, it's very uneven arts and culture here in that there are a lot of very big organisations, mostly doing quite good work. But the middle section and the grassroots section are not particularly well fertilised. And that means that audiences are not practised. 
because they're only seeing a particular type of theatre. It means that artists aren't practised. You know, there are very few venues in the city. You know, there are the big ones that we know about. But in terms of, you know, artists run venues or small venues or, you know, the 50-seat theatres on top of a pub or the 100-seat theatres or the... You know, there's very little of that in Brisbane and you would expect more from a city of this size. So that has to change. Otherwise, uh, arts and cultural scene risks not delivering what it needs to do in a city that's rapidly transforming. And you speak of the the disconnect between the top end and grassroots level. Who's, in terms of the responsibility, is it audiences can be doing more? Is it artists? Is it the leaders of the bigger organisation? Is it government? Whose role is it or who can be doing more to help alleviate that? I don't think it's up to audiences. But it, it's both up to, well, b- both ends, you know. And many, many of the smaller venues in other cities around the world are actually invented by uh, and run by artists. You don't see a lot of that in Brisbane. And that's got nothing to do with government. Um, but on the other hand, if there's if there's that hole in the culture, then... You know, government needs to somehow find a way to nurture that and to work out why it is that that isn't happening when you would expect it to happen. So it's a very complex question and seems to be in the DNA of the city. And small independent companies have, you know, risen from time to time in Brisbane. And there are a couple of really terrific ones in Brisbane at the moment. But more often than not, they have quite short lives. And that's disappointing that somehow they don't find a way to grip. You mentioned the little 50-seater venues and the theatres above pubs that, you know, certainly a lot of international cities do have right across. Festival, Brisbane Festival time is, of course, a time when we get to experience that kind of liveliness with pop-up venues and Mm. non-traditional spaces. Do you think there is capacity and demand in a city like Brisbane and the size of Brisbane for those kind of experiences in a more permanent sense? Oh, utterly. That's that's my point, that a rich arts and culture scene needs those things. That's what people search for and that's what gives a city its cultural personality in a way because those sorts of places can provide experiences that a QPAC, for all its strengths, can never supply, nor is it meant to. Mm. Um, And so... That's great for audiences too because it means that audiences are practised. They become more knowledgeable and more interested in a wide diversity of experiences. And often it's in those smaller venues where you do find the new voices or, you know, more energised cultural diversity or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, it's very important to a city's culture. Do you think venues and organisations compete for audiences or is there more that uh, organisations can be doing to work collaboratively to build audiences together? The city is pretty collaborative in that way. It's one of its strengths. 
And certainly in, in the festival, you know, we work with, you know, all the major cultural organizations and QPAC and so on and, and in a very friendly way. And I think we all understand at that level that um, we're all in this together. And so we do help each other out in terms of audiences quite a lot, um, more, much more so than in any other capital city right, by a long way. And it feels like that's been a relatively new thing that people are open to collaboration more so than they have been. I've certainly noticed it throughout my time here. You know, when I first arrived at Le Bois, it was a very difficult time for the company there. It had just lost its then triennial funding from the Australia Council and people thought it might fold. And so my sudden task, you know, was to somehow save the company. And I was only able to do that through the very significant help of QUT, through Arts Queensland at the time, who, who were extraordinarily helpful, uh, through QPAC and places like Brisbane Airport. You know, there were the four I would nominate in particular who, you know, and, and all the, you know, Peter Coldrake, then Vice-Chancellor and, you know, Lee Tabred at Arts Queensland and Vera Ding at Arts Queensland. They're all, they all took a front foot and said, yes, we want to help. I think it's interesting you mentioned there that you came into La Boite at a time when there was a very real possibility that that organisation, which at the time would have, what, been 85 years young and Australia's longest professional continuously running theatre company, obviously a very daunting prospect for you, but I recall that you know, in your first year, the, you know, the, the vision seemed to be to go big rather than kind of retreat and pull back. It's always been my philosophy that, you know, I think one of the worst things that organisations can do when faced with those kinds of challenges is to retreat. And I arrived at that through a close study of, of how organisations around the world, arts organisations around the world had, had been turned around. And so my first season in 2010 was ridiculously large with some very high ambition and not the sort of season that people were expecting. People were expecting to see, see a diminished level of work. The opposite happened. And I deliberately began with a very big production, that production of Hamlet, which began that first season, which was by far the biggest thing the company had done in years. And, and that strategy worked. You know, it was a kind of counterintuitive one from one level, but I understood what I was doing and I understood the risk. But people gathered around because they, um, they appreciated the ambition and appreciated the refusal to roll over. You mentioned, you know, that it was very much an all or nothing kind of approach in that inaugural season for Le Bois. Um, and you, you said just now that you knew the risk. Were you prepared that if the strategy didn't work, that that would have been on your shoulders? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, in a theatre company, when you're working all year round, you know, there are all sorts of levers you can pull across the year. And I knew what those levers were. And, you know, if Hamlet had failed, for example, then I knew that there were various levers we could pull elsewhere in the organisation over time throughout the year. 
but as it turned out, you, you, we played Hamlet for five weeks and you couldn't get a ticket. You know, we could have played for another five weeks. Um, and so it was a great boon to the profile of the organisation and then helped all the subsequent. That attracted sponsors and attracted the trust of government, you know, and all those things kind of rolled out from it. And does that that vision and strategy, you know, to to go big and be bold, does that carry forward in, into all the work that you do these days? Well, the decision to be kind of big, as you say there at Labatt, was for a very specific reason. So it's not, I'm not saying that that's a general rule of things, the big is better. It's not at all. And, you know, and in fact, the continuing requirement that, you know, things need to grow, and I don't just mean arts organisations, but nations, <laughs> you, know, you know, we're starting to interrogate that idea as a human impulse that one must or things must always get bigger. Populations must increase or businesses must grow and you know, we understand that there's a limited resources in the world, you know, so we're challenging the notion of perpetual growth. And that's the, that's the, across the board, and that's the case in arts organisations as well. So big is not always better, but for a specific reason, it was um, the right strategy, I believe, for Labois. And here in Brisbane Festival, for a different reason, not because of any problem, you know, I inherited an organisation that was actually quite healthy, but still needed to raise its profile. I was very aware that in terms of the broad population in Brisbane, there was still a lot of room to move. And an arts festival, an international arts festival, needs to be in the city. So being big came from a different motive then. Uh, and, uh, and in visible cities, it's big, but it's conceptually ambitious as well. And that's appropriate, I think, for Brisbane Festival at this time. Obviously, this is quite a nostalgic time for you on the eve of your fifth and final Brisbane Festival. When you think of theatre in Queensland, whose faces do you see? Um, they're, they're pretty regular ones. And it, it strikes me that, particularly in theatre, when you're talking about theatre there, that it's, it's a very top-heavy environment in terms of theatre, as it is culturally, I think, not, not theatre in particular, but probably in terms of the arts generally. It's a very top-heavy culture, you know, with big companies, you know, like Queensland Ballet and Queensland Theatre and the orchestra and so on. So we're very well served by the big major organisations. But under that, it gets very scarce and unusually, actually, for a city of this size. And so the result of that is that you see many of the same faces because the, the environment underneath those major companies is fairly spare. So that's not a lot of diversity. What do you predict will be the major trends in Australia in an arts and cultural space in 2020? It's a trend that began in a different way two or three years ago, and I think it will continue, continue inevitably. And that's the trend towards a wider cultural diversity, a gender equity, plays that are more on the political pulse. And I think we'll see that trend continue. You know, last year, for example, in, in terms of theatre, you know, the top 10 theatre companies in Australia, you know, all the state companies and then down to Belvoir and Malthouse and Griffin and La Boite and the Ensemble in Sydney, every single one of those 10 theatre companies had gender equity across 
its playwrights and directors, for example, certainly playwrights, which was very unusual and, you know, a long time coming. But also the the presence of Asian Australian writers in theatre has become, you know, much, much stronger than it's ever been, as well as, you know, writers coming from other cultural backgrounds. And some of the other art forms are taking a while to catch up with that, but I think that trend is now unstoppable in terms of equity and representing society in the in the, the widest and most richest sense. And, you know, we're seeing it, you know, as, as theatre companies begin to announce their seasons for um, 2020, we're seeing it and, you know, we've already seen it. And so I think that cultural trend generally, and it's not just in theatre, but it is particularly manifest in theatre, will inevitably continue and all for the better. Of those five festivals to date, this year's obviously included, is there one that stands out as the most memorable or most dear to you for any particular reason? I think two, my first and last. And my, my, my first, um, because to my mind, it was a particularly adventurous festival and coherent in a thematic way. You know, the focus on the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for example, was significant. But it linked with the African-American experience through the Peter Sellers Flexen. And Flexen, you know, which was essentially about police brutality as it affected young African-American men in particular, was then reflected in Beautiful One Day from Ilbidjuri Theatre Company, which was at some level about incarceration in our First Nations population. So there were all sorts of connections there. And actually the the African-American cast in Flexen developed some very close relationships with the cast from, from the Ilbidjuri show. Those performers in the Ilbidjuri show knew about some of the African-American experience. But, of course, those African-Americans, in fact, knew very little of the Indigenous experience here in Australia. So there were great learnings between the two of them. So I was very very pleased with that festival in the way it it kind of interrogated some very big ideas of race and colonialism and injustice in all sorts of areas. And then a lot of work from Singapore – you know, there were very few Anglo faces on the stage in that first season, actually. <laughs> you get, you needed to get to about page 34 of the brochure before you found an, a, an Anglo face. So I was very, you know, I, was, I have a lot of affection for that festival because of what it bit off. And I think this final one coming up for, for quite different reasons in that it's, I think, been a sign of the maturation of the festival that um, we can present something like Invisible Cities, which is an extraordinary piece, you know, by far the most ambitious the the organisation has been part of, and something that should absolutely be front and centre in any international arts centre, that kind of ambition that attempts to redefine what's actually possible when it comes to live performance. Uh, Million dollar question for you, David, of course, is what is next for you following Brisbane Festival? I'll be in Israel directly after uh, the festival and spending some time there, which I'm uh, really looking forward to. And I spent some time in Washington recently, which was my first uh, trip there. And and lots of wonderful things happen in Washington. I'm looking forward to returning there to DC. 
But uh, in terms of firm plans, none quite at the moment. David, we like to finish this podcast with a section that we like to call Five Honest Answers. This is a bit of a quick fire round. There are 20 questions here of which we have selected at random five for you. First one, who's the most exciting theatre maker in Australia at the moment? Adina Jacobs. Why is that? Uh, she's a visionary director. What's a work you wish you could see again as audience member? Dead Centre's Chekhov's first play. Audience participation, love it or loathe it? Loathe it as a participant, love it as a maker. Are ticket prices to live performances too high? Yes, but not at Brisbane Festival. And spill the beans on the best after party you've been to? The 100th performance of Holding the Man, okay. but I can't spill the beans. <laughs> Our guest for the first episode was, of course, David Berthold, the outgoing, very outgoing, but sometimes shy, but sometimes shy, artistic director of Brisbane Festival. David, thanks so much for joining us. Great to chat, Adam. Thanks for listening to IMHO. Make sure you subscribe and, in the spirit of the podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen to great podcasts. For honest opinions, ratings you can relate to, and the latest arts and entertainment news, check out inmyhonestopinion.com.au.